All right, let's go to our scripture reading for this morning. We're in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 to 28. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 to 28. Let me go ahead and read this for us. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as a high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us so that we may receive from you. Uh, We're not here to offer you primarily uh, something of our own, but first to receive from you something that only you can give us, uh, your unchanging truth about your unchanging nature. And God, we need that so much in this culture, in this uh, moment when we are uh, distracted by uh, things that seem to be telling us uh, they have the truth um, and that we are to be uh, conformed to their image. Um, And these are confusing times. But Lord, we come to you and for your word because to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and only you can give us that. So speak to us and open our hearts, the ears of our hearts, eyes of our hearts, uh, to see you and hear from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We're continuing our our series in the book of Hebrews, and um, we're going through this letter verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and uh, we know it's a letter written by a Jewish Christian apostle sent to Jewish Christian saints. And that's what the title Hebrews itself suggests. And the, the primary concern of the author has been for the Jewish Christians to not return, not return to the old covenant and its system of uh, worship. Not because those things are bad, but because those things are, in his words, copies and shadows of the better and the truer thing. Copies and shadows of the truer thing. And now that the truer thing has come, the old passes away. And what is that truer thing? Christ. Christ is the better, truer covenant. Christ is the better prophet. He is the better priest. He's the better blood sacrifice. He's the better altar. He is even the better tent and temple. Even the curtain within that temple. It's Christ. It's all about him. And if we put our faith in him and in his new covenant, then we enter the better promised land, the eternal one, the eternal country that even Abraham, Moses, Joshua, and David longed for. And in our passage today, this theme of of Jesus being the one who who brought us the better covenant continues uh, in this way, that Jesus is the better high priest who represents us in the heavens eternally, eternally, forever. Um, Apparently, Christians back then overlooked that, overlooked the the eternal significance of their relationship with Christ. 
And because they were only thinking of Jesus in, as someone having significance here in the here and now, in their own socio-political context, when they saw not much changing in that context, they started drifting away from Christ. So the author is bringing their focus back to the eternality of Christ, the significance of your relationship to Jesus in view of eternity, and how that can actually affect the way you live right now. Okay, so here's the outline for today. Uh, we'll think first about Jesus and our eternity, then Jesus and our destiny, and lastly, Jesus and our identity. Okay? Jesus and our eternity, our destiny and our identity. All right, first, Jesus and our identity. Let's take a look at verses 23 and 24 again. It says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God and on our behalf. Now, what we see here, first of all, is, again, the same contrast between the Old Covenant and the New, where in the Old Covenant, the Levitical priesthood, they could only enter into the holy place made with hands, the temple built by human hands, which the author says were copies, copies of the true thing. They're not bad things. They're just copies of the true thing. And that, again, is a very important distinction between the old and the new. Right? It's, not just that the, it's not that the old is vintage right, and therefore has its value. No, the old is a copy of the authentic thing. So when the authentic thing is here, you no longer need it. There's no value in the old thing anymore. One's a brochure, and the other is the actual destination. And Christ is that high priest who takes us to that authentic destination, which is not an earthly promised land, not an earthly temple, but heaven itself, where God is literally dwelling. Not symbolically, not, not just his, the presence of his glory being upon something. God himself, his own living room, that's where we are being invited into. And the, the amazing thing about that is if our faith is in, in Jesus and if he is our representative, if he is our high priest, then we have representation in that very presence of God, even now, even as we speak. And it's going to go on and on and on for all eternity. And that's something no Levitical priest, no, no Aaron could provide for God's people. No one can stand forever in the literal presence of God and represent us. And that's something at the very heart of the, the Christian message. Uh, in Jesus, we have such a high priest, one that the Israelites in the Old Covenant didn't have but longed for and really needed. He has come. The Messiah is here. The Christ is here. And he will bring us into the literal, eternal presence of God with his representation, apart from which we cannot stand before the presence of God. You need this representation. I remember back when I was dating Lynn, my wife, one of the things that I definitely uh, started to feel nervous about was uh, when Lynn started to tell me that she started to talk to her parents about me, right? That's when it's getting real, right? Um, she's talking to them about me without me, right? So that's the part where I'm nervous. So somewhere I'm thinking, you know, as I'm, as I'm studying in, in grad school in, in Florida, I'm thinking somewhere in Colorado, her parents are talking about me and thinking about me. 
and to some extent evaluating me, right? And I just remember hoping that Lynn would do a gracious job of representing me before her parents, right? Despite my flaws and my shortcomings, I hope to be represented well. And of course, later on, right, when we got close to engagement, I got to be a part of that picture a bit more where I had to represent myself more, speak for myself, uh, answer the questions that they rightfully will ask me, you know, be able to tell them, you know, this is my future direction, here's how I plan on providing for our family financially, here's how we plan on building a family, here's how we plan on growing together as a couple spiritually so that we are in this for the long haul and all the rest. And that was pretty nerve-wracking, but very necessary process. Um, but I found it necessary because as your relationships are becoming more intimate and you're approaching marriage, the standards get higher, right? The, the standards of the, the, the parents go higher. Um, and you know, as a father of two daughters, I'll tell you right now, my standards are pretty high already, and they're only like one-year-old and five-year-old. <laughs> but I'm ready to really go bad boys two on them. I don't know if you understand that reference. It's a terrible movie. Don't watch it. Um, I have a very high standard for whoever will ask for me to give my daughter's hand to them in marriage. So this is a very understandable thing. The higher the standard, the better your presentation ought to be, the better representation you ought to have. See, the amazing thing about Jesus is that he stands before the very standard of God the very standard of God, the highest of all standards, the, the throne of God where the cherubim, the, the, most, the purest, sinless, angelic beings, even they had to cover their eyes because they can't meet the standard of God's holiness. They had to stand before the throne of God covering their eyes with their wings. That throne is where Jesus is representing us, saying, saying to God, the Father, yes, Father, John, he is acceptable in your kingdom. He has the right to be called child of God. Not because of what he has done, but because of what I have done for him. That conversation is happening now and will happen forever before the throne of God. That's what it means to have Christ as your high priest. You are not going to God representing yourself because you'll never meet that standard. Christ must represent you and intercede for you. So it says in Romans 8.34, Christ Jesus is the one who died on the cross, not you. More than that, he was raised, not you. And he is at the right hand of God, not you, interceding for you and me. That's what you need. That's what it takes for us to enter in. His life, his blood, his sacrifice, his resurrection, and his representation in the presence of God. That's how we enter into the true tent, the true heavenly tent where God is. If you're going to spend eternity with God, then you have to celebrate this, that Christ is interceding for you eternally, forever representing you before the Father, making you acceptable before him. So that's the first point, Jesus and our eternity. You have to have that perspective. And this leads us to the second point, and that is how we now think about our destiny in light of Jesus, our destiny. Uh, take a look at verses 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Okay, two things here 
we learn about our destiny. Uh, First, there is this thing called judgment that comes after we die. After death comes judgment. And the word judgment there is synonymous with a legal judgment, whether you pronounce someone innocent or guilty, that kind of judgment. It's a judicial judgment. So this is something that the Bible promises will take place after we die. As a human race, we we will all face judgment after death. Now, here, here this this is worth pausing and just commenting on real quick. First, within the Christian worldview, therefore, right, the significance of death isn't just in death; it's what comes after death. Okay, uh, death is almost like it, it's a doorway to what leads leads to what's after that. The urgency, therefore in this lifetime is not somehow we have to deal with death in and of itself, but what comes after death, what death ushers in, essentially. It's judgment, the judgment that will either pronounce us as innocent or guilty before the throne of God. And as we heard in the catechism, right, for those, of you, for those people who are judged innocent will be received into heaven. Those who are judged guilty without Christ, without his representation, will be cast into hell. Now, as scary as that may sound, and perhaps even to our culture as uh, intolerant as, may, as that may sound, let me just quickly explain to you why these doctrines actually give us a lot of comfort in the here and now. Whether you're Christian or not, it gives you a lot of comfort in the here and now. For one, judgment in the afterlife confirms for us the very deep conviction that we all have deep down inside, and that is justice is a real thing. Justice is, is, a, is an objective reality. It's not a subjective, relative, cultural invention. Justice is real. But see, that can't be if this life is all there is. If death ends everything, then there is no such thing as true moral accountability because people get away from injustice all the time. People escape justice all the time in this life. And if that's permitted, justice isn't real. It isn't isn't done. It doesn't exist. It's a nice idea. It's a naive idea. And perhaps like like, Nietzsche said, it's a way for powerful people to control weaker people. But if there's no moral accountability after death, true justice doesn't exist. That's why Dostoevsky famously said in the Brothers Karamazov, if there is no immortality, if there is no God, then all things are permitted. Whether you live like a a Mother Teresa or a Hitler, doesn't matter at the end of the day, to dust you shall return. And if that's it, there is no rational reason why we should choose to live a life committed to justice when in the absence of that final judgment that settles all scores, it doesn't matter if you live unjustly. Now, this doesn't mean that people who, who don't believe in God cannot behave justly. I, sometimes I think non-Christians can sometimes outdo Christians in behaving justly. What this does mean, though, is that when they do live according to justice, within their atheistic worldview, they're not living consistently within that atheistic worldview. They're borrowing from a theistic worldview, one where God exists, one where moral accountability is a true thing. So if you choose to live justly, pursue, let's let's say you pursue racial equality, 
You're borrowing from the worldview where God exists, where moral accountability exists, where there is a final judgment for all the racial injustice that's been done that people got away with. This comes from an atheist philosopher named Richard Taylor. He said, it's one thing to say we as human beings have legal or political obligations to one another because that's clear as to who you're obligated to, to your fellow citizens. But when you say you have a moral obligation, something binding on your conscience, that's appealing to a divine being. That's appealing to a higher lawgiver, he says, who holds you accountable in this life or the next. And so if you want to talk about moral obligations that goes beyond legal or political obligations, you're assuming the existence of God. So he says, quote, apart from the idea of God, the words moral obligation remain, but their meaning is gone. You can say moral obligation, but it's meaningless in the absence of God. So as scary as the idea of judgment in the afterlife sounds to us, it's not because it is untrue. Perhaps it's scary to us because deep down we know it ought to be true. It ought to be true. And we know justice is indeed a reality. Now, if... If there's comfort there in knowing justice is a reality, right, in view of the judgment in the afterlife, then the second thing that we draw from this that's very beneficial is that this makes, then, our pursuit of justice in the here and now utterly meaningful. Even if, even if you're faced with all kinds of obstacles against that pursuit of justice. Why? Because there is ultimate moral accountability, and you will be vindicated if you are pursuing justice now. Justice will be made complete, if not on this side of the grave, on the other side, when death comes and when death brings judgment. So, so the, the idea of the, the judgment in the afterlife encourages you to live justly now, regardless of how much opposition you're getting. But in the absence of that promise of moral accountability in the afterlife, it's almost like, you know, if there's so much injustice here, why should I even bother? Why should I even try? Right. These are the two very important, essential truths that even non-Christians hold to that really, at the root of it, is coming from this understanding that moral accountability exists after death. This is what we're destined for. Now, having said that, here's what verse 28 also says. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Right? Here's what else will take place. Christ will return. He will come a second time. And this time, he will come to bring his people home. He will come to save them. But as it says here, when Christ returns, he will not do what? He will not deal with sin. That's something that won't happen. Meaning, sin has been dealt with already. Right? When Jesus sacrificed his own life, shed his own blood on the cross, and went through, in, in terms of his spirit, went through hell and God's wrath upon sin, sin was dealt with. Sin was finally dealt with when he died, resurrected, and ascended. Right. There's no more need to deal with sin. No more work is needed to be done for the forgiveness of sin. No more sacrifices. 
No more offerings on the altar. No more repentance. The people of God are taken care of by their great high priest who will come the second time to bring them home, and that will be it. That will be it. So this means for those of us who are represented by Christ, the return of Christ is not something we have to dread or be afraid of because he's not coming to deal with our sins. He's dealt with them. He's dealt with our sins already. Meaning, the judgment we face can only be of one kind. You're sinless and innocent and righteous before the throne of God. That's our judgment. And that's why we pray as as the Apostle John prayed in the book of Revelation, come, Lord Jesus, and come quickly. Because the judgment we're longing for is the one that vindicates us, the one that pronounces us innocent. That's our destiny in view of Christ. A part of why the author has been stressing this idea of Christ offering himself once, once, is to contrast again him with the repeated sacrifices of the old covenant temple worship. It's so that people will look to Christ's one offering, his one offering, instead of their repeated sacrifices, and know sin has been dealt with. You don't have to go back to the temple every time you feel something lingering in your conscience. I, may, I know Jesus died for me, but maybe I should offer another bull. I know Jesus died for me, but maybe I should offer another lamb. He offered himself up once for all. This is a repeated theme all throughout the book of Hebrews. Here in verse 12 in this chapter, we, we've read, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. And we also saw in chapter 7, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And on top of this, there's this repeated usage of the word repeated to stress the same point, that the sacrifices of the old temple worship cannot cannot do what Christ's once offering of himself has done. In Hebrews 9.9, the author says, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect, cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. And as we will see next week in Hebrews 10, the law can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered, repeatedly offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. What is the author trying to say? What is this author telling this original audience, the Jewish Christians? Stop. Stop trying to secure your own destiny by what you do and look to Christ. Stop living as though your work, your sacrifices still matter under the new covenant established by Christ. They don't. They've become obsolete and have passed away, Hebrews 8.13. There's one thing that saves you and secures your destiny, and it's Christ. If you have him, you'll be okay. If he represents you, you are well represented and you'll be able to stand before the presence of God. Now, having said that, there's something uh, very important for us, uh, especially if we believe that, uh, to understand. Because, see, 
whenever we hear this, this gospel, this good news, it can sound like there's absolutely no activity left for the Christian as we wait for Jesus' return or wait for death to come and we face the judgment of innocence. It's like, okay, great, now I can just right, chill and watch Netflix <laughs> for the rest of my life. Is that what this means? Right? Does it somehow justify some current state of spiritual laziness that you're experiencing or a lack of spiritual discipline that you have? Is it okay that I, I can go a whole week without ever opening the Bible, ever drawing near to God? Is it okay I can go through a whole year without ever sharing the gospel with anyone? Is that okay? And the answer is, no, it's not okay. That is not a proper understanding of your identity in Christ. And this is the last point. If you understand your eternity in light of Christ, your destiny in light of Christ, it has to change your identity. And changing your identity means that you change the way you live now. First of all, you know, th there's a pattern in human behavior that you ought to recognize, and you probably will. Whenever you mark something as your core identity, this is, this is who I am primarily, that will determine much, most of your behavior, right? I am a student. That's what I am primarily. Well, you'll be studying even when you don't want to, right? It, it controls your behavior. I, I am someone who is pursuing a certain career path. Well, everything else gets sacrificed for that pursuit, pursuing a successful career. It, it establishes pretty much how you will behave depending on what you establish as your core identity. Now, biblically speaking, whatever you choose to establish as your core identity is your object of worship. It's what you worship. It becomes your functional deity to which you give your whole life, your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what worship is. And you will worship that thing for one thing, validation. Validation of your identity. And the place that you enter into for that validation becomes essentially your place of worship, your temple. Your temple. Let's say your, you know, your core identity is to be a good student. Your classroom becomes your temple. Your core identity is to have a successful career. Your workplace becomes your temple. And you'll enter into that place like you're the priest representing yourself, bringing the sacrifices of what? Of your work, often turning into workaholism or your, your perfectionism. That's the offering you bring to your temple so that what? You will be declared acceptable there. You'll be declared righteous there before that throne. You'll be deemed lovable and acceptable. But here's the thing. The same problem that existed in the old covenant system of worship will exist in that in that in your current in your current earthly temple of worship. And it is this the sacrifices and the offering that you bring will never end. It will never stop. It will never be enough. It will never be enough. It will never be enough to make you, no matter how hard you work, how hard you try to please the people there, the deities there, to make you feel fully accepted and validated. 
for you to be truly known and truly loved. Don't you see, this is exactly what Jesus came to undo for us, to liberate us from by bringing us into the new covenant, by representing us as our high priest in the highest, highest of courts, greatest of all temples, with his once-for-all sacrifice so that we would be, before the very throne of God, deemed lovable, deemed acceptable, deemed righteous. So this means when we enter into this place of worship or even when you're worshiping in your home, we're coming to God not to get validated by God, but because he has validated us. And this is the oasis, the only place in the world that tells us you can perform for me not in order to be accepted, but because I've already accepted you. Because I've already accepted you. This is the one place where you don't have to measure up to your God because your God has measured up for you. We're here to be set free. And anything that tells you otherwise is not Christianity. Did you notice that, that your identity in Christ is safe and sound and, and no suffering can take it away, no criticism from people can take it away, no amount of people's disapproval can ever threaten it or destroy it, that you are, when you are in the eyes of God, totally and fully and, and, and utterly accepted and validated, that secures you for the rest of your eternity. And what will this do for you when you realize your identity is this rock solid in Christ? It will change the way you worship and therefore change the way you live. And when you take a look again at verse 28, it gives us a clue as to what that looks like, what, what that change looks like in the here and now. You know, what are those people who are saved by Christ in verse 28? What are they doing in the present tense? It says, to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Eagerly waiting. Eagerly waiting. What does that mean? Well, what does it mean to eagerly wait for anyone, just on, even on a human level? It means, for one, you have this very clear sense that I can't be without that person. Regardless of what I have right now or how much I have right now, my eagerness ultimately is to be with him. I don't even want to distract myself with, with someone else or something else until I'm with him. Because if I do distract myself, then my eagerness is not directed at him, it's directed at these other things. I'm not so eager for him. Eagerly waiting means it's got to be him. And no one else and nothing else will do. I won't settle, settle for anything else. It, it, it basically means every, your priorities in life will shift drastically. Eagerly waiting for him means clearly Christ is the number one priority in your life. That's one. Um, here's another thing about eagerly waiting. Eagerly waiting means that I prepare myself actively for his return. Right? It's like if I know that an important guest is, is going to come over to my house, I will rearrange my home, make it ready for him. Not set it up so that it's comfortable for me, it's convenient for me, but for him. Everything in my life gets reordered for his sake, for his purposes. So it does mean I get to work, but it's not the kind of work that would earn this person's love for me, but the kind of work that proves this person already loves me. 
It's something I do in response. It's the work that I do in preparing almost like, you know, preparing a new home for my bride, as it were. That's the work to express the love that we have, not earn the love we don't have. And Jesus says, you know, on the day that he returns, he will say to his people, or the people he will bring home, well done, good and faithful servant. What does that mean? Think about what that means. His servants, the ones who are truly saved, are those who have done things well, done things faithfully. What is it that you are doing well and faithfully for him right now? What is the pursuit of your life right now that proves to the people around you and to God, to yourself, that your eagerness is for him and not for any earthly thing? For his name and his kingdom, not for your name and your little kingdom here on earth. And are you sure that you're freed from the grip of other deities that demand your sacrifice, your work, your life? Are you freed to serve God and his kingdom? Paul puts it this way in Galatians 5, using the same exact phrase. For through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. All right, here's what this means. Our keeping of the law has ended in Christ. He has fulfilled the law on our behalf. Our circumcision or uncircumcision, our keeping the law perfectly or not keeping the law perfectly counts for nothing when it comes to our salvation. There's no circumcision or uncircumcision, no Jew or Gentile. But this remains for God's people. Our faith in Christ working itself out through love. Faith in Christ working through love. How are you working out your faith, your faith in Jesus through love? What are you doing for the least of these that Jesus cares the most about? What are you doing for that one lost sheep? The one lost sheep, the, perhaps the one sheep that's drifting away from God right now, yet God has placed within your life, within your influence. What are you doing for that one lost sheep? How are your priorities aligned with Christ's priorities? Are you eagerly waiting for his return so that you would hear him tell you, good and faithful servant? Well done. How is your faith in Christ flowing over to even the brothers and sisters in Christ within this household of faith, within this place of worship where our eternal identity is most visible and pronounced? Are you faithful to another identity at a different temple and giving your best there? Let's think carefully about these things so that we're not mistaking spiritual laziness for faith. Faith is active. Faith is eagerly waiting. Faith is seeking and saving the lost. Faith cares for the one lost sheep within your reach. Eagerly waiting means eagerly longing to hear the Lord say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would let these words um, sink deep into our hearts and let it bear fruit accordingly and let it convict us uh, and let it invite us to, to follow you more genuinely and perhaps more diligently. Lord, call us out from the uh, other, other temples where we may have been worshiping on the, all the other days other than Sunday, where we have been offering the best of our hearts, best of our desires, best of our passions, our attentions, and our priorities. And may we submit those things to you. May we return to you, and may we repent and look to Christ, our high priest, as our core identity, our eternal Savior and Lord, and may we find our rest there and let it transform the way we live our lives, the way that we walk into a workplace or a classroom, not to, not to build an identity we don't have, but to be sent in with the identity you've given us, to be your salt and your light, to be your priest, to be like little Christs here on earth, seeking your justice and your righteousness, sharing your good news. Use us in this, in this way. Open our eyes to that one soul, that one person, who's drifting away from you, you've placed plainly in our sight. Or if we don't see such a person, open our eyes so that we would see and help us point them to eternity. Help us point them to Christ, their high priest. We can bring them into the presence of the Father. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.